recording. Any uh, questions from last week? We covered as quickly as we could the Ten Commandments, and we didn't go through any of the commandments in particular, but we did talk about the three uses of the law and the two tables of the law, um, three uses being a curb, mirror, and guide, and then the two tables being the first three um, concerning God, and then the next seven concerning our relationships uh, with our neighbor, and of course they are they should be connected. If your God is true, if your God is right, uh, then you will uh, see your neighbor as God intends you to see and love uh, your neighbor ultimately. So any kind of concluding questions on that? Did we talk about how Jewish folks number the Ten Commandments? Did we discuss that? Anybody know what the first commandment for Jews is? Um, it is, I think, from uh, the book of Exodus... Uh, I, the Lord your God, am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt um, from from slavery and bondage in Egypt. Which is interesting because as Lutherans, we tend to kind of categorize as the Ten Commandments as the law, the law, the law. These are what God expects from us. These are the demands that God, you know, I guess, places on all human beings, but also the way that God's designed life for us to thrive and live, Right. And yet, for the Jewish people there, in the first place, the first one of the commandments uh, is a reminder of what God has done for them, which we would call, uh, in one way, a promise, right? Um, So that's uh, kind of an interesting distinction, right? So it's not, that's also to say that sometimes these views of God that many people have or that God is some kind of cosmic killjoy or the law is just there to kind of ruin people's fun. Like, we're all having a good time here on Earth and then here comes this God who's got to go tell us to not do fun things like disobey your honor, your father and mother or steal your neighbor's stuff or, or what, what have you, right? Um, but first and foremost, it's in the context of a relationship. That is, he is the God uh, who is not just distant from them but who has raised up Moses himself to bring them up out of Egypt uh, and that he is a God who has already in what sense rescued them and in the context of that rescue in the context of that relationship then he gives kind of these uh, these rules for life, these rules for living So, uh, and it strikes me that being fundamentally lawless is pretty obviously a bad thing that we've really only experimented with seriously in kind of the last 50, 60, 70 years maybe um, anybody familiar with the whole Jordan Peterson um, movement, I guess you could call it? Yeah. So, do you like Jordan Peterson? I don't want to put you on the spot, James. Uh, uh, in, a, in a short answer, yes. Mm-hmm. In engaging, uh, listening to Dr. Peterson walk through the book of Genesis, I mean, there's like 13 uh-huh. three-hour lectures on Genesis. And doing right. that a couple years ago really helped me re-engage with my faith that yeah. I kind of lapsed for a while. So. Right, right. Um, so he really understands, uh, sometimes as Christians we have arguments about the wrong thing. Well, they're, they're fine arguments to have, like six-day creation. So we're going to talk in the creed about creation. That's a, that's a fine argument to have. But you should also be talking about the meaning of creation more than just the how it happened. How might be an important conversation to have, but the meaning and what it means for people uh, and what Genesis is getting at in so many of the stories and how that relates to us is the real heart of it, right? So for the creation story, you compare that to other creation stories where the gods are kind of the servile, or the human beings are kind of the servile playthings of the gods, right? So they're born 
out of death and destruction, or these gods were fighting these gods, and then they made these human beings. Uh, kind of the Marduk and Tiamat, the Babylonian creation myth, is saying that. And so they made these human beings to go to war against this god and all this violence, uh, and human beings really aren't very dignified, right? Um, and that's what it's part of what Genesis is, is getting at. I don't know if Peterson would talk that much about that. Yeah, in, in you know, there's the one thing that uh, I guess we in the West that we still hold on to pretty well is we kind of understand the Greek myths. Uh-huh, and, yeah. you know, there's a subsidiarity in the structure of the Olympians. You have Zeus at the top, and they had to battle with all the other Titans, and they killed them. There was a war, and then Zeus is at the top, and then you had the other Olympians, and then the humans are the playthings at the bottom. Right. And that's very common in the other, what we would call pagan religions out there. But for the Jewish tradition, it's completely different. There's God, and then it's flat. Everybody right. else. Right. God, flat. And we're all made in the image of God. We have a set of ten laws. You have to treat everybody the same if they're you know, a lord or a slave or a woman or everybody's right. the same, right? And that was radically different politically and theologically from all the other societies at that point in time. Right, yeah, absolutely. And so you have that that pyramid structure where, where gods are really just kind of humans writ large. And so the, the gods have the same vices in kind of Greek mythology, whereas, you know, the Jewish and then, then Christian understanding is the, the huge distinction between creator and creature, so there's God and then everything else, right? Um, and, and ultimately, part of what that means is that uh, because you're made in the image of God, there is this purpose and meaning to your life, and you have a purpose and meaning, right? And so one of the things Jordan Peterson talks about is his kind of 12 rules for life, right? Especially to angry young men who feel like they have no point in life and they have no uh, purpose and they can kind of... We're getting far afield now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I brought up Jordan Peterson, and it's now it's kind of interesting. But um, they have no purpose in life, and you want to lash out at the system, right, and say something's broken with the system. And he's saying, no, just start with yourself, right? Clean your room, take care of your little corner of creation, whatever that might be, uh, and begin to find some some identity and security and purpose in, in that. You may have, you've probably listened more Jordan Peterson than I am. Is that accurate? To uh, yeah, you, a you lot gave of, a, a good summary. A lot of what he's saying and why he appeals uh, to a lot of people who have lived with, you know, kind of lawless existences. Do whatever you want, fulfill whatever desire you have, and ultimately that's never going to make you happy, right? So um, laws are actually good things. Any thoughts, comments, questions about the Ten Commandments there? All right, so moving on, one thing that we don't really have time to talk about in these eight weeks is the structure of the liturgy, um, but you've all been to service, so you kind of have experienced that in any way, um, but just to kind of put this at the top, there's a good link uh, on the LCMS website to the different parts of the liturgy. I think you can just Google liturgy parts LCMS, and it'll come right up. Um, you can kind of see the basic elements of our service there, so uh, to walk through those pretty quickly right now and stop and ask if you have any questions. Um, the invocation, of course, is a reminder uh, that we are not our own. Our lives do not belong solely to ourselves, but we belong to the triune God who made us, redeemed us, and sanctified us uh, through the Holy Spirit gave us faith. So that's why we begin every service uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son uh, and of the Holy Spirit. And then the sign of the cross, of course, that is made upon uh, the entire congregation and also everyone is invited to make upon themselves. 
that then is a is a sign that you belong to Christ, uh, and that His cross is your cross and belongs to you. Now, that seems to have come back even in my. I don't remember growing up making the sign of the cross, and then all of a sudden, high school, college, it became much more common among Lutherans. So, if you grew up Lutheran, did you grow up making the sign of the cross or not? Catholics did. No, Catholics, of course, <laughs> did. Yeah, but you didn't. Do Methodists do it at all, or is that no. okay? Generally, too kind of too Catholic, or I, I don't know, but no, I never saw it. Okay, okay. Um, but y'all would have y'all would have the invocation, right? The name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Catholics would, Methodists yep. would, yeah. So that's going to be pretty common among all uh, Christian denominations. Uh, and then we go to confession and absolution, which used to be even in the Lutheran Church used to be private. So the idea was that you would come Saturday to confession and absolution with the pastor, and then that prepared you for communion on Sunday. So only in the last 150 years did the kind of everybody do it all together model really take hold uh, where we all uh, confess our sins kind of together and of course there are benefits to doing it that way it saves time <laughs> it saves time for everyone involved when we can all do it together on, on Sunday uh, there are some downsides which is that it's not really the kind of private um, reflection not you know not Meditation, not obsession, not anything like that, but the kind of private reflection on your own week that might be afforded you through through having okay, I'm going to go to to confession with the pastor. Which um, confession, private confession with the pastor, is never something Lutherans wanted to get rid of 500 years ago. They just didn't want to to burden consciences with it. So um, we're going to cover too many bases here. Anybody ever heard of the Book of Concord? Did we talk about this already? Yeah, so I'll pass one one copy this week, or this way, and one this way. Um, there are different translations, as you can see. But they kind of talk about what the Lutherans were doing at that time. Uh, and one of the things they say in there is, we do not intend to abolish private confession, right? But they also don't want to require um, people to confess every single sin that they've committed in the last week, Right? So if you thought a bad word about your neighbor <laughs> and you don't confess that to the priest, then that sin is still perhaps on your soul in some way. And so they, throughout a couple times in the Book of Concord, they say, you know, hey, as even the psalmist says, who can discern the error of his ways? Right. Um, so that's confession and absolution. Uh, any thoughts, comments, questions on that? In many different parts. So it's many different documents, and it began, I mean, the first one would be 15, gosh, I guess the small catechism in 1529. The Augsburg Confession is in 1530. It includes the three creeds at the very beginning, it's trying to say we're part of the small seat Catholic Church. And then it goes all the way to, to 1577 in the Formula of Concord. And then the first edition of the Book of Concord with all of the kind of writings is um, in 1580. So 1580, yeah. So we all had a really fun time six years ago celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but we got the year wrong. <laughs> really should have been 1530 because when Luther nails the 95 Theses, that's just the start, and he really doesn't know what's coming at that point. I mean, there's going to be uh, 
far more is going to happen in the next 13 years than he can even realize or foresee. And what's interesting is it almost serves primarily as a political document. You have all these different regions that we, I guess, might, what we might today call states or counties that are fighting about what churches, you know, we're going to have. And if you're in St. Louis County, that might be a completely Lutheran county, but as soon as you cross the river into, um, it's just called St. Charles County, right? Mm-hmm. The north, so as soon as you cross the river into St. Charles County, maybe they're completely Catholic or some sort of like that. And to be a resident of St. Louis County means that you're a Lutheran. To be a resident of St. Charles County means that you're a Catholic. Very different than what would come to be the American system of freedom of religion. Um, not saying right, wrong, or indifferent, just that's how it kind of was. Uh, thoughts, comments, questions on... Well, we'll talk about the Book of Concord a little bit later, too. Uh, we should have a study on the Book of Concord. That'd be very interesting, but um, maybe down the road. <laughs> uh, so then the Intruit, uh, the Kyrie, of course, the Lord have mercy. Many of these are hymns derived from scripture readings that then that then come into the liturgy that the church uses. Uh, the hymn of praise, so the glory to God in the highest. So that's obviously from Luke chapter 2. Uh, or Lutherans will often use this is the feast in divine services one and two. Um, that kind of comes from the book of, of Revelation. This is a feast of victory uh, for our God. So then we have, of course, three scripture readings. Uh, we say the creed after the scripture readings, you have the sermon, and then basically the communion liturgy, um, the sanctus. Does anybody know uh, what the $10 word is for the little bells that ring at various parts of the... Um, is Dr. Lafferty told that to anyone yet what that's what that's called I think it's called the tintinabulum I could be getting that wrong uh, the best way to explain that in the Sanctus in the communion liturgy is that's basically like a doorbell which is that Jesus is here now right so if you hear that right before we do the words of institution the Lord's Supper that means you know it's a doorbell Jesus is right at the door about to be on the altar presenting himself for our uh, for our forgiveness so uh, Sanctus, Words of Institution, Agnus Dei, uh, the Nunc Dimittis, that's uh, from uh, Luke, I think, right, Song of Simeon, and then the Benediction as well. Um, so we could talk for a while about the liturgy, and I think the value of the liturgy or a liturgical service. Obviously, all churches everywhere have some kind of liturgy that they follow. If a liturgy just means and order of service. Um, we use what comes from the, the called the common service in 1888, uh, going all the way back to Luther's revision of the Western Catholic Mass at that time. So obviously we don't have really time to get into that, <laughs> nor would I necessarily be prepared to do that, but um, generally that's what history has given to us to do, and it seems to be not the best idea to do away with some of those elements without a really good reason to do so. Um, okay, thoughts, comments, questions there. And of course, in the LCMS, it used to be that every single church did the same thing. <laughs> From 1941 to like the mid-80s, uh, well, until the beginning of the 70s, every church pretty much was doing 5 and 15 on the old red hymnal from 1941, if you knew that hymnal. Um, there was kind of a remarkable uniformity that has gone away, and that's 
there are reasons that went away, but okay. So there's a period of time after we start the confession, you say, here's a moment for you to take time for personal reflection. Yeah. That's never long enough, because if I start on Monday and try to, <laughs> I, can't, I can't get past noon on Monday. <laughs> so, so on the serious side, what, yeah. what's really good about it is the absolution part, because you're saying the words, but it's not your action. It's right. His. And the forgiveness right. that comes with that is extremely valuable. Right, and uh, so, yeah, the pastor is just a placeholder. Um, pastor is just a warm body. <laughs> He's just a guy who has to be there, right, to stand in for Jesus, which is why vestments are a good thing, is because they tend to hide the pastor, which is why if pastors have obnoxious big curly hair, they should cut it off so it's not <laughs> as distracting, right? And so if they're doing the absolving, you're not thinking about, boy, he needs a haircut, uh, and instead thinking that's, that's Jesus speaking to me, you know. Um, but yeah. So I'll leave a longer time for reflection and say, Daryl told me, one of our lay ministers said, we need more time to reflect. So I'm setting my watch. I'm going to go sit over there for five minutes. I'll wait until you start. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's never going to be able to get past that. Right, right, right. It'll come back to well, my first thought was to go, yeah, really snarky on it and say something like, "Well, maybe it's not long, maybe it's not long enough for you, Daryl, but for everybody else, but <laughs> that kind of thing." But I would never say that, right? I would never say that type of thing. We. Yeah, or yeah, or leave the sanctuary. I'll absolve you at the end of the at the end of the service type of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that's a, a really quick rundown. And I guess if in the next week, if you want to look at that website and just have any bring any questions you have, I mean, the liturgy um, combines different hymns derived from scripture from different traditions. Some of it's Greek, some of it arrives from a Latin tradition, right? So it is kind of worldwide in that sense. I mean, we sang a hymn that was written in. 1871 China on Sunday. Did anyone like that hymn? I got the impression it was maybe not not as yeah, popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not as, not as familiar as a hymn. Um, but I mean, it's uh, so it's worldwide. It kind of reflects the Catholicity of the of the Church, not only throughout present time and space, but through historic time and space. Uh, then as well, yeah. That, that probably was during the time. Yes. Uh huh. Ooh, I do not know the history of the mission in China. Um, it was written. Oh no, it was written more recently than I thought. Uh, well, the author from China was uh, died in '79, so I don't know. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Regarding the order of the liturgy. Yeah. Do you like it? Is there anything you'd move around? Move something up? Move <laughs> That's an interesting question. Something you want to add? Yeah, yeah. Um, I 
My initial thought is no. The one, the, the biggest change, if I were to make a change, I would say get rid of the corporate confession and absolution and have an eight-hour time period every Saturday to come in for private <laughs> confession absolution. But I also want to watch college football on Saturday, so you know I'm a man of I'm a man of two minds there. Um, not no, I think I think most of it is structured pretty well and does a good job of moving from uh, law and considering that to the gospel and hearing the gospel and hearing the scripture and hearing that proclaimed to us, and then even if the sermon's not very good, receiving uh, receiving Jesus in the supper. Um, what would you move around? I don't know that I would move anything around. Um, I went to a Catholic high school. Okay. So I, I grew up Lutheran, Lutheran grade school. Sure. But there wasn't a Lutheran high school. Yeah. But we had a Catholic high school. So my brother and I went there. And going to all those Catholic services, it always seemed like they were rushing as quickly as they could through the sermon. Like this, For us, the sermon was the centerpiece of the, uh, of the service. But for them, it was the Eucharist. Right, right. right. Communion was... Yep far and away the most important thing and like the pastor talking was it almost felt like they didn't even really prepare for it, it was, right it was very much an afterthought right so it felt like they rush 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 and then you know a big ceremony and so the structure of the two different services and kind of the feel of it coming from the pastors i i always think that's interesting the different kind of churches you go to yeah yeah and that's uh, that's a good comment because i think there are two um there are two basic parts of the liturgy that say the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. So as we have it here, everything up through the sermon then uh, is the service of the, the word. So hearing the word of God followed by the service of the sacrament, right? And so um, how often do they have mass without the Eucharist? That's a good question. Or do they, never. Never, they, they, always, never they always have it, never. right? Okay. So obviously Lutheran churches are not, and how long has it been since... Lord of Life. I mean, Lord of Life has been doing every every Sunday, every Sunday communion for how long? Probably a dozen or fifteen years. Okay. Like okay. What well, was it before that? The frequency. It was uh, maybe eight o'clock one well, week, yes, five or ten thirty. Okay. Back and forth. Okay. Right. Because growing up, I remember it happening once or twice a month, and mm-hmm. I was the, the every single week is new to me. Yeah. I had always been in churches it was twice a month, like the first Sunday. Right, right. So why, yeah, Gene? I was going to say, the travels that I've had when I was working, I always tried to go to churches and I ran across a couple of times Do they have confession? Yeah. Okay. But well, they didn't have absolution. Yeah. Well, maybe they didn't have confession and absolution. Okay. Yeah. But you know, you kind of wait for the pastor to go. Right, right. So, <laughs> there are different services in here, like matins. I grew up doing matins from the Blue Hymnal a lot. Um, and those are largely non communion services. Right. And then they will not have confession and absolution. So confession and absolution, at least in the last 150 years, is seen as kind of a, a preparatory rite yeah. for for receiving communion. Yeah. To, to so these were regular services. Really? Not and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. It wasn't very often. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway. Huh. 
Yeah. And so I think with, at least with the LCMS in my mind, there's been much more of a push in the last 10 to 15 years to do communion every Sunday. And I'm not entirely sure. I think it's a good thing. I'm not sure where that comes from. I think it maybe is um, coming from some of the liturgical renewal stuff that was happening around and after Vatican II in the Roman Catholic Church. And so uh, there also was a historical problem when they were settling in the West and you could only get a pastor once a month, right? And so even now there are people who attend LCMS churches that will take communion four times a year because that's what their parents and grandparents did. That's how the tradition kind of arose. Uh, and then that became kind of the standard. Luther made some comment somewhere. Did I mention this last week? About how he couldn't imagine a Christian who took the Lord's Supper fewer than four times a year. And that got taken perhaps, I think, more literally than he meant it. As in, take it four times a year. <laughs> as opposed to, don't do it fewer than four times a year type of, type of thing. But... Uh, yeah, and I think it's an interesting comment about Roman Catholics because that was my perception about the preaching as well. For many priests, it's really an afterthought. And that's, I don't know if that reflects your tradition growing up or, and I don't think, I'm not going to say Missouri Synod has great preachers by and large. I don't know that. But, yeah. No, I mean, preaching was never a thing the Catholic churches, grade school and high school. And most of my well, all my teen years. So I was like, anyway, no, preaching was never good. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but, but like you said, it, it was almost like nobody took time. Nobody took time to think about what they wanted to say. It was very canned, uh, for right. lack of a better term. Right. Now, let me look up something on, the, I didn't have Wikipedia then when I was in school, but let me look up something. And right. And say something right. about it. And it didn't necessarily, the part that bothered me, it didn't necessarily tie in with the readings or the gospel. Okay. Um, it's kind of an agenda-driven thing. That's yes. And, yeah, so, yeah, preaching on the readings is interesting. Um, obviously, some churches, we use a three-year lectionary, so we have the same mm -hmm. cycle of three uh, of readings that repeats every three years. And so one year, the primary gospel is Matthew. That's this year. Mm -hmm. So we're in year A. You can go to the bar and tell all your friends, you know, hey, do you know what <laughs> liturgical year we're in? And they'll say, no. And they'll say, buy me a beer if I tell you. And they'll say, okay, right. Uh, year B is Mark. Year C is Luke. Um, other churches, I think Village and Ladue uses a one-year lectionary. Um, so that's the same readings every year. That's that's called the historic lectionary. Um that goes back a little bit longer, obviously, in the history. That's why it's called the Historic Lectionary. Um, and then other churches will choose whatever readings to do or do a sermon series or something like that. But never John in our three years? So John is, is mixed into all three years. Yeah, yeah. So oh. trying to think of when the last time we had a John reading. Look for them. And then the next time... In the Gospel or in any of the readings? In the gospel, yeah. So next okay. time, yeah, so look for John. I don't know when the next time John would be. Uh, in fact, let me just show a website. I'm going to try and share my screen, Linda. Let's see if I can get this Yeah, that's something I never really understood is the three years. That helps a lot. Yeah, so it goes Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and different, different epistles will be focused on. So one year, like the main epistle this year is mm -hmm. Romans. Um, and then the next year, I think it's going to be 1 Corinthians. Oh, this isn't going to let me do it. 
I'm going to try and pull my screen over. Oh, there we go. So I can share it, Linda. Okay. And I'll just show if you ever want to see what uh, the readings are. No, that's not what I wanted. Okay. Um, I want this one. Which means. Um, so this is called. All right. Now Linda can see it, but you can't. Yes. So then we have the opposite problem. Did this yeah, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with this. Have you seen it, Linda? Okay. Um, yeah. Let's see. This is called yeartoglance.org. Um, so if you're ever curious at what the readings will be, just go to yaag.org, and it will list them. So here we are, Church Year LSB, uh, Series A, 2022-2023. So you can see here is where we are. So the reading for this coming Sunday is Matthew 15. And then you see Matthew, 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 Matthew there. And then, you know, you have a special feast service, so, so Thanksgiving, and that's always the reading from Luke. Sure. And then Reformation, you have a reading from John or Matthew. Those are always the same reading. So every every Reformation, you read uh, Romans 3 and, and Psalm, and you keep going with Matthew, Matthew, and then you have... See Luke on Thanksgiving. Oh, that's Canadian Thanksgiving on the 9th of October for all oh. you all you who are going to be celebrating a Monday Thanksgiving Day in Canada. All right. And then you have the last the last Sunday of the church year. So you can scroll up here and go, you know, switch to one year series. And then here's the one year. So you can see it goes Matthew, Luke, Matthew, Luke, John, Matthew, Luke, 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 John. Uh, and it's and it just kind of moves moves on that way. Um, so it's not sequential in the sense that um, our consecutive, like one week is Matthew, the next week is Mark, the next week. No, in the one year? Yeah. Yeah. No, they'll choose the readings that they most want to do. So you can see Matthew, Luke, Luke, Matthew, Luke, okay. Matthew, Matthew, John, John. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, And of course, the one thing that keeps me from doing, hopefully, is um, just getting up on Sunday morning and talking about whatever I want to talk about. Right. Because I'm hopefully bound to talk about what the texts talk about, right? I think in the in the Catholic Church too, it was hard for the priests because they would have two services every morning, like at six o'clock or six thirty and an eight o'clock service. Yeah. So and then the weekends where you have multiple multiple services, so they probably right. didn't have time to prepare right. for all the sermons that were necessary. Uh huh. Yeah. From what I remember, it was a lot of they would kind of retell the story about whatever feast day it was that day. And there's like there's like three on every day of the 365 yes, day calendar. Yeah. So it's just like, yeah. you know, this is the feast of St. Gregory of Nyssa, and we're going to talk about something he did that day. And that yeah. was, that was yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. yeah. I think I remember part of that. Or it's a feast, it, not a feast day, but it's uh, every mass was offered for Someone this person, like yeah, yeah indulgence, not indulgences, sorry, but it is kind of like an indulgence. My late mother, no, my late husband's mom still is very Catholic, and in her will, she had it changed so 14% goes to masses to be read for her so she can get out of purgatory quicker, gotcha. things like that. Wow. But, but I remember mm. mom and dad would get like when they passed, their friends would send mass cards, you know, the yep. mass yep. on such and such a day is going to be for right. And that, yeah, so to tie that back into Luther, he goes to Rome as a young man, I think 1512, 
And that's one of the things he's so disillusioned by is all these people in Rome are in the church so they can say mass validly, but all these priests are doing it against the wall as quickly as they can so they can say as many as they can so it can, mm-hmm. I mean, cynically Not you would say mm-hmm. so it can generate as much revenue as it can, right? right? right. You have a revenue building stream here mm-hmm. that you say masses to, to do that and that's one of the mechanisms you use to do that and so the more you mm-hmm. say, so Luther uh, goes to Rome, in fact he walks there from Germany expecting to have this great religious experience and he comes away really cynical and jaded. Um, because that's they part of it. back in 1512. I think 1512, yeah. Saying masses for people. Yeah, you got to build wow. the basilica, right? So yeah. you got to build St. <laughs> Peter's. It's, it is gorgeous. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> fair point, right? So the, the my background is St. Chappelle, and I think they did that the same way, right? Indulgences, right? So you want great stained glass or something like that? You got to do that, I guess. Uh, anyway, any other uh, thoughts, comments, questions on that? Which, again, is part of the point of saying Mass, the worship service, is God's way of serving the people in the first place, not primarily our way of serving God. Which is a big philosophical change to kind of make, right? It's primarily God's way to serve us in here is where it does transform us and we serve him in the process. But, um, and that is not just you know, Roman Catholics who might have that uh, predilection towards saying it's really about how we serve God or the sacrifice of the mass. So the Eucharist is a, is a, is a, what do they call it? An unbloody sacrifice. Again, some kind of offering. Um, But also a lot of other Protestant churches will uh, talk about church attendance in that way. This is really about you serving God, really about you getting right with God, as opposed to what we might say is, God serving us and forgiving our sins. Anyway, uh, that's kind of a side comment. Thoughts, comments, questions there? So to, to review what we talked about last week with the three use of law, curb, mirror, and guide, uh, one of the things that Luther writes in 1518 is called the uh, Heidelberg Disputation that uh, sums up law and gospel pretty well. Uh, he writes these kind of disputations, these theses, and says, okay, here's... 30 things that we're going to think about and argue about for a while. Um, one of them is called the Heidelberg Disputation. Uh, thesis 25 is this. He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. So righteousness is not a matter of doing things, but believing much in Christ. Now he is going to talk there about the righteousness before God, not our righteousness before man. So I can't sit there and speed down Baxter Road on my way home and go 60 miles an hour, have the cop pull me over and say, no, I'm not righteous on the basis of my works, good or bad. I'm righteous on my belief in God. I shouldn't get a ticket. I could try it. Has anybody tried that? I think somebody should try that. I've always used that as an example, and somebody's going to take me up on trying that with a cop, and it's not going to work. But uh, So that is the vertical relationship. And then our horizontal relationship with other people, our horizontal righteousness, you might say, is going to be a different matter. Um, That should be informed by our vertical relationship, but it's not uh, quite exactly the same. Uh, 26, the law says, do this, and it's never done. That is, the law is a mirror, in some sense, always reveals our incompleteness to do what it demands. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. So... Uh, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. 
The law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe in this and it is, uh, and everything is already done. Thoughts, comments, questions on those or on law and gospel generally as now we kind of went from the Ten Commandments largely the law. As you read the Ten Commandments in some ways you will always come to terms if you're being honest as Daryl was about not having enough time to reflect on Sunday morning, right? Uh, if we're honest and we come into contact with the law, we'll find things that we've done wrong. Uh, and so that will then drive us to what is to be believed, not just what is to be done, namely what is to be believed in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, thoughts, comments, and questions? Go again. So uh, the Creed, then, as we have the Apostles' Creed, which is going to be found on page... Uh, if you'd like to just take a look at it in your catechism, in the actual catechism part, which will be found on page 16, um, then this, what time are we at? 7.38, that's unfortunate. Uh, this, will, this will be, uh, any questions, Linda? Feel free to interrupt whenever. No, I'm sorry, no. Okay. Um, so this will be... Uh, really the summary statement of the gospel, what is to be believed, the kind of most basic, most fundamental things that we uh, that we believe, but perhaps that raises a question. Um, we have, I don't have one here apparently, up there, we have the Bible. Uh, isn't the Bible good enough? Why do we need uh, creeds at all? Um, so there's a couple of things that you may have heard people say at one point that this church doesn't have creeds or confessions no creed but the bible or people will sometimes say something like deeds not creeds um, true false and different any initial reactions to something like we don't need creeds we have the bible I think you have to have a summary statement yeah the, the bible is that big right get it, the essence we get down to a small creed or a statement of belief right. that is a, an umbrella that covers a lot of stuff. Right, right. So a kind of summary statement of what is to be believed. Yeah. Did, oh, sorry, oh, did you raise your hand? Uh, I was in the Boy Scouts. Okay. Right, and at the beginning of every meeting we stand up, we do our little thing and we go through the Scout Code. Right. If somebody asks you What's being the scouts about? You can say, "Well, you got to read the whole handbook, and that'll tell you." Or you can right. say, "Scouts trustworthy, loyal, helpful." Yeah. Right. And that's right. like it's a shorthand. It like serves two functions. One function is to bring everybody together, and the other one is it's educational. Like this is what we're about, right here, right. shorthand. It's not right. all of it, but it's the the basics. Right. Right. Yeah. So the the basics of the faith that can be clearly communicated, right? So so in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, as long as that is, or in something like the small catechism, right? So in Luther's day, not everybody's going to buy a Bible because not everybody can afford it. And even though the printing press is making it much, much, much cheaper, uh, it's still a big expenditure compared to, you know, now we have so many Bibles. It, you know, uh, you can buy a Bible for, buy a case of uh 20 Bibles for 30 bucks or something on Christian book if you want to because they're made of the thinnest paper and, and whatever um, and there's no way to really quantify it but before the printing press when they had to hand write every Bible 
it would have been an investment to buy a Bible, something akin to like buying a, a car, you know. So think of like a fifty thousand dollar expenditure relative to whatever your budget would have been eight hundred years ago. That would have been like buying a Bible because they have to sit in a scriptorium and copy copy uh, everything. I have a picture from uh, the Book of Kells. Well, I have a couple of pictures of manuscripts. One of them is. Um, Let's show somebody the manuscripts. Yes, the paragraphation oh, conversation. Cool. Yes, well, we should actually bring it in. Um, and you can see where they have to trace everything. They'll sometimes scratch and correct it. There's also a more decorative manuscript where they've done the illustrations, too. So, you know, if you're making a Bible for the king, you're not going to leave it just plain. You're going to do some of the drop caps or whatever else. But not everybody has a Bible, so especially something that's easy to memorize, like the small catechism, in an oral culture in which they can't just go down and put, uh, pick a book off a shelf. Right? You also have to take yourself way back in time before they even really... Uh, well, they had the Bible, but the process of how the books in the Bible came to be in the Bible uh, took place throughout you know, the first century and a half or so. So the earliest Christians right away are formulating some of these statements about who Jesus is, even while God is inspiring the authors uh, of the New Testament books. Right. Um, so uh, that is sometimes known as a rule of faith or the uh, analogy of faith, that this is what it means to be a, a Christian as we follow uh, this thing. So does somebody want to read that middle paragraph there from Irenaeus? Um, Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp who was a student of John the Apostle right? so he's actually two degrees separated from one who walked with Jesus himself and against these different beliefs about who Jesus is, is Jesus uh, just another prophet uh, is he just a man whom God adopted as his son uh, is Jesus a crazy person Right. If you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's *Mere Christianity*, you know that's kind of how he sets it up. Uh, Jesus is either knowingly a liar, he is stringing everybody up for his benefit, or he's a lunatic, because only a lunatic would claim the things that Jesus claimed, uh, or or he is actually uh, the Lord. Right. So from the very beginning, they find themselves having to defend their faith, uh, and Irenaeus writes uh, writes this. Somebody want to read that middle paragraph? This faith in one God, the Father Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth, and the seas and all the things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who made known through the prophets the plan of salvation, and the coming, and the birth from a virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord, and his future appearing from heaven in the glory of the Father, to sum up all things and to raise anew all flesh of the whole human race. Okay. Um, well, any reactions to that? Or does that remind you of anything? Sounds like yeah, it sounds like the creed, right? Yeah. yeah. That's the idea, right? So so I don't even know if, if Irenaeus made this up himself, and this comes just from his brain and he's kind of writing these down, or if this was something that was already being 
talked about confessed at the churches, right? And so it. So at, this was like two thousand years ago that Irenaeus. Pretty close. Yeah. 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 1900 yeah. So. Years ago. Okay. Uh, presumably 150 AD, sometime before 150 yeah. AD. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, already there, you know, not too long after. Uh, sometimes you hear this myth that the divinity of Christ was kind of stitched up back after the fact, right? That nobody really believed in the divinity of Christ, and then you know, maybe a couple centuries passed. It's like, okay, well this kind of legend grows up that Christ was just a man, but then this legend grows up that he was really divine and that kind of thing, yada, yada, yada. Um, at the very least, they were willing to die because they thought Jesus was raised from the dead. So if they thought that Jesus was raised from the dead, right, and they uh, clearly regarded him as some kind of divine being, they were at the very least willing to stake their lives on it. Right, and that's, uh, anybody heard the name N.T. Wright um, before? Kind of New Testament scholar, Bishop of Durham, um, English guy. He, that's one of his historical defenses of the resurrection is nothing really accounts for the growth of the early church in the face of persecution that wanted to stamp it out. After all, Christians were known as the atheists <laughs> because they would not honor the emperor as divine, right? So those those atheistic Christians who don't see whoever the emperor is at that time as, as divine. Um, I lost my train of thought, and it needs to come back into the station. What was I talking about? Oh, the growth of the early church, the resurrection. Unless Jesus were actually raised from the dead, uh, why would you have so many people willing to... to uh, commit their lives to it. So some who will deny the resurrection today will say, well, they had some experience of the resurrection. Well, ancient people knew that there was such a thing as ghosts or, you know, you hear about ghosts all the time, actually, uh, in various ancient authors and something like the, uh, the Odyssey or the Aeneid by Homer and Virgil, you can see the shades, right? They go into the underworld and they talk to the shade, um, right? They knew there was something like a shade, a ghostly kind of figure, right? What actually explains them being willing to die for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead other than actually Jesus rising from the dead? Uh, and so from the very beginning, you see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made flesh for our salvation. He's God first, and then he takes on human flesh. He's made flesh, and then in the Holy Spirit, made known through the prophets the plan of salvation, the coming. So it sounds very much like a kind of creed, right? So then you have these kind of statements of belief that form, that eventually coalesce into a kind of unity. The first one is actually not the Apostles' Creed, but the Nicene Creed that is written in 325 to combat the heresy of Arianism. Anybody ever heard of Arianism or Arius? Um, yeah. The historical understanding that I have on the Nicene Creed is that Constantine wanted a unified political and theological front in the empire. So he yeah. said, all you Christians, I think the Aryans were in Egypt, and they're yeah. like, all yeah. you, you need to settle your squabbles, and like this right. bickering, the infighting of the church needs to go, get on the same page, because it's going to be good for the empire. Uh -huh. And that's that was kind of how everything coalesced right so so constantine at the uh at milvian bridge in 313 is that the right date he has a vision of 
the cross, it says, in this sign, conquer, right? So that he wins the battle the next day, and now he's a Christian. And it's not long before Christianity is legal. And then Christianity becomes the, the official religion of the, the Roman Empire. And then uh, he wants to have it settled, right? And so Arius is a bishop in Egypt. I can't remember the, what's the name of the town. Somewhere. Um, and he is teaching that there was a time when the son, when Jesus was not. Right? That is to say there was a time when Jesus did not exist. True or false? <laughs> That's stupid because you all know it's supposed to be false already. But um, what would be the problem with saying that? He's going to say the same things about Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose again, but there was a time when when he was not. Well, it puts one... Uh, Go for it, Linda. Okay, I'm not quite sure I'm following you, but I'm... Jesus always was. But he wasn't called Jesus, but he was the son of God. And he existed when... God did from, from the beginning of the beginning of you know for creation. Yes. As, so I'm not quite following your question because the Son of God always was with God. Right. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. So it, maybe not in human form. Well, yeah, not in human forms. There's a time when he takes on flesh, right? Um, so there is a time when he is the uh, the Greek word would be logos asarkos, the the word of God, like in John one, asarkos without flesh. And so, if you ever read, I mean, this is part of the assertion is actually that you can find the Trinity in the Old Testament, right? And it says in the New Testament that Jesus is even involved in and through creation. So. It's a little bit speculative, perhaps, but God speaks at creation. What's the word that he speaks but Christ working through him to create, working alongside him to create everything, right? Uh, the spirit hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the breath of the, the triune God, if you want to put it in anthropomorphic terms and, and do it that way. So, so he always was, and even before the creation, God was always triune in nature, um, and there's actually kind of a logic behind that to say if God was only a single entity without relations in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then he could not... This is going to get really weird, so I hope you brought your waiters. Uh, if it gets deep in here, uh, he could not be a God of relational love unless he were a trinity. So if you're just one unified being that's existed before even there was time or space, then you would not be the God of love, the fact that God himself is love, uh, that is God relating to himself, uh, or as Augustine says, God is the lover, Jesus is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the force of love between them. Yeah. That gets a, that gets a little weird, maybe? And as we're going to see as we talk about the creed, that might not be the most helpful way that we talk about the Trinity. We typically talk about the Trinity in terms of how they are revealed to us and made known to us in and through history. God, the Father, primarily creates, though they're all involved in creation. God, the Son, primarily redeems, so they're all involved in 
uh, redemption. God the Holy Spirit primarily sanctifies, makes holy by giving us the gift of faith. Um, mm-hmm. But even before the creation, they're all they're all there, which is kind of a brain breaker, don't you know? And what was God doing with all that time before creation? You know, was he watching Netflix? I don't know, Gene. Yeah. Right. So there's yeah. So that specific phrase, the angel Lord, the Malach Yahweh, is is um, many scholars think that's Jesus. So the pre-incarnate Christ, before he takes on flesh, is making appearances here on earth. You know, he's guest starring for a time, and then he's going to be back in heaven awaiting the incarnation. Um. The other, yes, the angel of the Lord, and that shows up, you look at Joshua, and Joshua is kind of a disturbing book, because they're going through and destroying all these towns and civilizations on the way to the promised land. Now, of course, the God of of love must necessarily be against that which is, is against love. I'll try and say that again. The God of love must necessarily be against that which is against love, right? which is why things like Old Testament violence we are not fans of from a modern perspective. It's hard to rectify it in my mind, but if you think about it in that way, that the God of love must destroy that which is opposed to love and that which promotes love. That's perhaps one way to get a read on it. But in the book of Joshua, the the commander of the armies of the Lord shows up, and what what does Joshua say to him? Are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, neither. Right, which is a really interesting response. Um, so, if you want to see the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, the commander of the armies in Joshua might be a good place to, to look. But yeah, wherever the angel of the Lord shows up. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? And I think Arius would say that too. Well, okay, yeah, in the Old Testament, but there was a time when Jesus was not. Um, which I think would ultimately, the, the real risk is that you're going to deny the divinity of Jesus in some way. Because if there was a time when he was created, back to the Jordan Peterson thing, if the conception of God as scripture reveals it is really, here's creator, an infinite gap creature, then, I mean, it's kind of what we talked about in Sermon Sunday, the Job 38 move, right? Only the creator actually sees everything. Right, if Jesus is actually only a creature and not also the Creator Himself, He can't really serve as the bridge. Jesus is actually both Creator and then He takes on flesh. He takes on the form of a, well, Philippians would say the form of a servant, right? The form of a creature. Um, so that happens in oh my gosh, it's seven fifty six. Great. We'll try and get there. Uh, Three twenty five is the is the Council of Nicaea. And then the Nicene Creed is, is kind of completed by the Council of uh, uh, Constantinople in 381, right? Um, the, the Apostles' Creed kind of develops uh, in, the, in the 5th and 6th centuries. It's kind of the, primarily the baptismal creed. That is, when you agree to be baptized, this is the creed you're consenting to. This is the creed you're saying, I believe uh, this, which is why in the, adult, uh, the, the rite of adult confirmation I handed out last week, those questions you'll see are tied to the 
to the Apostles' Creed. So it's a very, very long historic uh, tradition. So uh, the, the three articles of the Creed correspond to the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, so the first article, the Father, God the Father, God created the heavens and the earth and is distinct from them. Issues arise, um, on the, the 5A1 of the outline, when we confuse the creator-creature distinction, either by making God analogous to a creature and prescribing limits to him that are not appropriate, or by assuming that we, in, our, in and of ourselves, might have the power to create. So you either humanize God or you divinize man if you don't keep the creator-creature distinction uh, intact. I'll put it that way. Um, So that's one aspect. The second question is this, which is a non-rhetorical question. What problems could arise if you only confess the first article of the creed? So as you look at the creed in your catechism, or if you just have it memorized and you think about it, if you say only, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and you stop there, uh, what problems could arise? Well, yeah, there's no mention of Jesus, and so why is that a problem? Because that's what we believe. <laughs> you could be Jewish or Muslim. I mean, right, so that's the corollary question is what God, do, what God do Jews and Muslims worship? Or do they worship the same God that we worship? That's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on the person. No, I mean. Well, it, it, so different people have different understandings of how that question is asked, right? And that maybe is, is um, but I mean, if someone were to ask you that, you know, if you're at the bar bragging about your knowledge of what we talked about earlier. Um, and what's the closest bar here? Does Billy G's have? No, Yaya's. That's what Brian told me. Yaya's. If you're at Yaya's with Brian and uh, you're trying to show off your knowledge, and yet somebody wants to test your knowledge and asks you, do Jews and Muslims and Christians all worship the same God? How do you respond? They do not. And, and why is that? They don't believe all, not everyone believes in the triune God. Yeah, yeah. Right, and I think that's probably the clearest way to go is say it really hinges upon Jesus, and that's what the early church struggles with is, what do you do with this Jesus of Nazareth, Mary and Joe's kid that we knew growing up? Uh, is he God or not? Right. Um, the the other way to perhaps make that question a little more interesting is that we are all three people of the book that is the Old Testament, and so ostensibly they think they are worshiping what we would call the first person of the Trinity, but we would say that there is no such God because the Trinity is. God, you need all three parts of the Trinity to have the fullness of the Godhead, right? Um, and that by only having the Old Testament, their their understanding is kind of incomplete as it as it were. Does that make sense? So everyone can go to Yaya's tonight, take care, buddy, and uh, go to Yaya's tonight and get involved in some spiritual discussions there. Um, I'll discuss things with my dog. <laughs> Give Brian a call from Africa and, and take his brain about it. How many animals has he bagged so far? Three, and our grandson had four. 
Wow, okay, nice, yeah. nice. <laughs> um, so that would be the first article. The second article about the Son, uh, fundamentally about the redemption Jesus accomplishes on our behalf. So that's a tricky word, actually. Redemption is kind of a fiscal metaphor. You're buying back something back. You're redeeming something. As a kid, you'd go to the arcade and get tokens, and then you'd go to the counter and redeem those for something worth way less than you paid to play the game in the first place, right? Um, from who or what is Jesus buying us back? From sin, death, and the power of the devil. Spoken, spoken like a true Lutheran. So yeah, all three of the above. <laughs> and the early church Peter. has... Uh, <laughs> The early church has this idea of the the ransom theory of the atonement, which is kind of interesting. That is, the devil held uh, the whole human race captive in a way until Christ could come and ransom them, free them, which is kind of interesting. That theory is often criticized because that gives the devil too much power, as though the devil is also not a created being that is a fallen angel that God and his providence allows to operate uh, uh, for whatever purpose. Um, in any event, that was a, a very interesting thing for the, the early church, but certainly from sin, death, and, and the power of, of the devil. Um, and then to what end does Christ free us from sin, death, and the devil? Or for what purpose? Which is maybe kind of uh, a silly question, but why? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to locate it first and foremost in the providence of God and say God actually wants to win his people back, right? Um, and then that we use our Christian freedom, as you would say, to love God and serve our neighbor too, right? So there is that sense of uh, uh, it's simply in the will, in the good and gracious will of God to do to do such a thing. Um then it also establishes in one way our identity, security, and meaning, which is kind of a helpful three-word phrase you can see there. It's a remind of what I think fundamentally humans are looking for in life, some sense of identity, some sense of, yeah, who, I, who am I, um, what is my purpose, and some sense of security uh, here and in the future, and also some sense of meaning uh, and purpose. And it, to me... It turns out that just living to make money or just living to have pleasure probably isn't a very, it's probably not a very good ism. Um, but I don't know. I've never really tried. Don't the Amish have rumspringa where they try and say, you do your own thing and then see if you really want to come back to the community. And most of them end up coming back, right? Is that accurate to rumspringa? I don't know the Amish community that well. So uh, maybe I should try leaving uh, the Lutheran faith for a while and living as though I could really do whatever I want and there were no controls on me. Um, that's probably not exactly what Rumspringa is, but what do you call it, Rums? I think it's called Rumspringa, but you'd have to. Yeah. Is that it? You'd have yeah. yeah to Google it and check it out. Yeah. Her dad always says if he bought a boat, he'd name it Rumspringa. Okay, so that would be. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, isn't there a period of time in, in an Amish person's life wow. where they're to, to go away from the community and yeah. see, and most of them end up coming back, right? Huh. So that's kind of the 
the goodness of community and structure and laws and boundaries and, and stuff like that. I'm gonna write that down. Rome's for no, I'll ask Brian if you learned that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's your new uh, your new topic for uh, it's for it's like Rome and then Springa. Yeah, Rome Springa. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> there you go. When, when you know the Mormons come of age, they go out and right. serve the Lord of the world for two years. Yeah. When the Amish come of age, they get to go do whatever they want until they get tired of it. Wow. Sounds like the Amish are getting a better deal, right? <laughs> and there is a sense, there is a sense though, with with that where, um, how do you put this? You can't if you're if you. You really don't know that money will never actually make you happy until you have so much money that you couldn't possibly want for any more money, right? Which is where something like Solomon and Ecclesiastes, he was the wealthiest man in the world at that point, had a thousand women at his disposal, right? Uh, he alone could probably tell you that wine, women, and wealth would not in the end make you happy, right? Whereas if you're living a middle-class existence... And there's always some kind of greater amount of security that you could even buy, even physical security for your home. If you wanted to have the giant estate with the, the guards or whatever, right? Uh, if you're living the kind of normal lives that most of us live, then there is always some sense of maybe some amount of money would actually make me happy or bring me some, some meaning. Or, you know, they say money can't buy happiness, but I've never seen anybody sat on a jet ski and I don't own a jet ski, so maybe I need to own a jet ski. And then once I own a jet ski, I'll get tired of the jet ski and realize that even a jet ski won't make me happy. Right. Um, so that's why Ecclesiastes, I mean, that's kind of part of the purpose of that book in my, in my thinking. Um, okay. So maybe Rumspringa has a, has a point there. There's still time. I, you can become Amish and maybe have your own rums for you. You have to ask them about the rules. Not at age 60. Uh, don't, 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 you're only limited by what you think, right? Right. Uh, all right. Then the third article of the Holy Spirit. He uh, sanctifies us, makes us holy, primarily, you would say, in bringing us to faith. And then how does one become a Christian? Is it a matter of human choice or of divine choice? Um <coughs> What is our final and lasting hope, and what is the difference between heaven and the resurrection of the body? All good questions. If we look at page 17 in the Catechism, um, Luther will answer those questions shortly, and we can spend a long time unpacking them, but it's already after 8. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth, keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. The next page, in this church, he daily and richly forgives me and all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead, give eternal life to all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. So there's, I mean, it's a matter of God's choice, and God gets to be God, and God gets to choose. And we could talk, and we were talking a bit about that on Sunday morning Bible study on on God's election, God's choice. That's a really controverted and thus controversial topic. So we could spend a while talking about that. So, um, in terms of salvation, it's God's choice, um, but God does not deal with us as blocks of stone, right? We have hearts and wills that do respond to His choice. 
um, in some way uh, after he converts us, after he brings faith to us. Um, and then we do have choices to make on a horizontal realm here. Um, what is our final and lasting hope? What is the difference between heaven and the resurrection of the body? The final hope is not just being in heaven with Christ, but also that God will raise us all and all believers and will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So what will heaven be like? I don't know. What will the new heavens and the new earth be like? I don't know. But I hope for Daryl's sake it has golf, right? <laughs> That'd be great. And Gene, in the new heavens and the new earth, your knee won't bother you. You can play as much golf as you want, right? The point is that it will be. It will not just be this kind of incorporeal, floating on clouds existence as we have often seen, but it will probably be more tangible than we realize. And if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, the image there is of people. Uh, it's kind of a purgatorial image where people are trying to train themselves into righteousness for heaven, and the image is that the people not the environment the people are kind of ghostly and as they get more accustomed to heaven uh, they become more transparent and solid and so when they first try and walk on the grass the grass is what actually hurts them and injures them because the grass is so real and they are not quite there yet if that makes sense and if there's a book beyond the bible that you should add to your to your to be read list C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce is one of them, one of the top five, in my opinion. It's um, it's a wonderful book, and it kind of goes back to Dante and the Divine Comedy. Um, and, of course, it's not just about purgatory. It's really about our lives, right? Uh, it's really about uh, here and now, too. Uh, thoughts, comments, questions on that? Okay. Linda, any thoughts, comments, questions? No, I'm good. Very good. Um, so then we're moving now from we've done what is to be done with the law, what is to be believed with the creed, then in a way it's how do we respond uh, in a life of prayer with the Lord's Prayer. So if you'd like to read for next week, the section in the Catechism on the Lord's Prayer is 231 to... 280, so roughly 50 pages, 231 uh, to 280. And on the back of the handout is a picture of what was uh, a medieval manuscript, speaking of uh, medieval manuscripts, you can see the names of the apostles there, starting at the top left, Petrus, Ioannis, Thomas, Philippus. Um, can't read all of them because the resolution is not great. But there was this old idea that the Apostles' Creed was so named because each of the 12 apostles contributed a phrase. You know, we kick it to Peter and he says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Kick it to John and he says, maker of heaven and earth type of thing. Uh, you know, they're all at karaoke one night and they thought, <laughs> let's put our collective minds together. Um, that's not true historically, but they believed it for a while, so... Uh, it does reflect the teaching of the apostles, which is why we um, still still call it the apostles. So, very good. So let us um, let us pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. 
and we forgive those who trespass against us. We need not to temptation. Take care, Linda. Thank you, you too. Thing no one needs to see. <laughs> <laughs>